Let's turn in light of that verse to the book of Acts with me and your New Testament copy of God's Word, Acts and the chapter number 17. Acts 17, and really we're only reading this passage for a little bit of a historical context for the book of Thessalonians, and we'll be coming to the first epistle to the church in Thessalonica in due course this morning. And I thought it might be beneficial to remind you uh, why there was a church there and how that came to be and why the Apostle Paul was writing to them. He was one that was uh, led by the Holy Spirit to preach there in days gone by prior to the letter being written. And he spent three Sabbaths, it seems, uh, initially at the very least with these people that would be coming to deal with and looking at their testimony in due course uh, this, this morning. So we'll begin the reading at the verse number one of chapter 17, and we'll read down to the verse 15 of this passage. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And some of them believed, and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. But the Jews which believed not moved with envy took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people." And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received, and all these, and rather these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people, and the rulers of the city, when they heard these things, and when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Therefore many of them believed also of honorable women which were Greeks, and of men not a few. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were to the sea. But Silas and Timotheus abode there still. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus for to come to him with all speed, they departed. First Thessalonians chapter 1, and we'll read the entirety of this first chapter. It says there, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, 
but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were ensamples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus which delivered us from the wrath to come. Amen. Over the past number of months and weeks, I have been preaching uh, throughout various uh, congregations, as I have been doing for the past number of years. Uh, but I have to be honest, the past couple of weeks, it hasn't really been the most joyful of an experience. If I was to flick back in my uh, notebook here to the previous messages that I've preached in uh, various congregations, I can look back to uh, last Lord's Day in Lurgan, uh, where we spent the entire day on the book of Lamentations. And it has to be said that the book of Lamentations is a book filled with grief and sorrow. There's not much joy and hope in that book, although there is some glimpses of rejoicing and hope in it. Uh, we still had to deal with the grief that is found there and the reason for the lament, the reason for the lamentation. And I was thinking about it throughout the week, and we trust that the people in Lurgan aren't still lamenting the fact that I was there uh, preaching upon that passage. Prior to that, uh, one of the titles I preached on from the book of Philippians was How to Live When Death is Better. You can see the, the theme isn't all that great in many ways. But again, we trust that hope is brought out in there. The previous message before that, thank God for weakness. It's been a bit of a doom and gloom, a series of messages. But this morning and throughout the week, as I was thinking about this message and also preaching in a midweek service there as well, Monday evening or Monday morning, whatever it was, I turned to the book of 1 Thessalonians and it was like a breath of fresh air for me. And spending all the time in, in dealing with sin and the, uh, the, the judgment that had come upon the people of God in the book of Lamentations, justly and rightly so, it was a breath of fresh air to read a book where the people of God are being commended for their faith, for their testimony, and for their hope in the gospel. As we come to look at this chapter 1 of the book of First Thessalonians, I'm going to try to say that, uh, that title of the city as little as possible because I can't quite get it out. It feels like a real struggle uh, to get it across. Uh, but as we deal with this book this morning in the chapter 1, I want to draw out four points from the first chapter. Let me just give you them briefly here as we commence. I want you to see in the verse number 4, uh, their election, and draw a couple of points from that that lead us down into the verse number 7 where we see their example and how they sounded out the gospel and spread it forth in all the world. And then we'll move on in the verse 9 to their experience and what they actually experienced when they turned and served the Lord. And finally, I want to get to the part that really thrilled my soul, and I trust it will thrill your heart this morning, verse number 10, where we see their expectation as they wait upon the Lord's return, as they look forward to the King coming, and as they want to bask in the sunlight of Jesus Christ, which will be a lot more pleasant than the sunlight we've had over the past number of days, regardless of how much you like the heat, the humidity that comes with it isn't all that great. And praise God, when we see the sun face to face, there'll be no doom and gloom, no uh, bickering, no fighting, no frustration with how warm it is. 
We'll all be rejoicing and giving thanks to who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. Looking at their election, if you think about that theme as Presbyterians and as free Presbyterians in particular, we deal with this topic, I'm sure, over and over again in the preaching of the gospel and how necessary it was for sinners to be chosen by a gracious God, elect out from among a people that none of us were deserving to be saved from. Yet here in this passage, in the verse number four that we've highlighted, it says, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. This leads us into a testimony of the Thessalonian people that is is very clear. The Apostle Paul, a wise man, a godly man, was able to look at their life, able to look at their, their outworkings in their society, and to be able to say it almost seems with a certainty that these individuals had been elect of God. Now, whenever it comes to understanding those things in detail, I'm not going to get bogged down with the the doctrine of election in too much detail here this morning. We do not preach to a people that have elect written on their foreheads or elect stamped on their back or a sticker that they can wear in the workplace. No, we preach to everybody. But when you turn to Christ, when you have your sins forgiven, when you have a testimony like the people in Thessalonica, It should be said of you that you are a Christian. People in your family, people in your home, people in your workplace, people in Larne should be able to look at your life and not simply say, as they might do in a flippant way, that you're good living, but they might, if they understand something of the gospel, be able to say, there's somebody that God has chosen, that God has elect to be one of his people. Now, we maybe wouldn't be able to say for certain, as I look around the congregation here this morning, who exactly is saved of God. I can look at your testimony. And for the most part, I'd say most people in this church are probably Christians here this morning, but I can't say that for a fact. Maybe you're one of them that aren't. Maybe your testimony is so clear and plain and true that the world and everybody outside of your family and everybody in your family and everybody that you knows knows that you're not elect, knows that you're not a child of God because even though you come to church, even though you tick all of the religious boxes in a sense, as you attend the house of God on a Sunday, they know there's something not quite right with you. They know that as they see you in the street that there walks a hypocrite, not an elect child of God. And while there could be questions over election and questions over uh, what that really means in this passage and how the Apostle Paul could be so certain, was it the Holy Spirit leading and guiding or was it because of the fruits which he knew them by, as the Scriptures describes it, is really besides the point. The point here, as I introduced this this morning with this doctrine of election, is that I want every single person here to be among that number. I want you to be able to walk out being sure of the fact that you are saved. Being certain, as we were singing in the Psalm 62, certain of the fact that God has saved you and given salvation unto you and that he is going to hold you and you are sure that you are in his family and fold. That's what the verses go on to say. Look with me at verse number five. Their election wasn't just some doctrinal thing that they debated and discussed in, in their Bible colleges and in the quietness of their home at time around the dinner table. If you're maybe a little bit odd, maybe that is what you do. Or maybe as you argue with other believers that don't believe this doctrine, what is it that, that was so central to this passage? It says, verse number four and five, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, this is the explanation, but also in power and and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance. You see, their election came with much assurance, and we'll see in verse 6 in a moment's time, also with much affliction. 
They came with a surety, a conviction as the word could be translated when we look at the word assurance. There was an evidence because as the gospel was preached in the, the city of Thessalonica, there was an evidence that God was moving in power as it is put there. God gave help to the preachers. God gave help to the apostles as they opened up the scriptures and alleged, as we read there in Acts chapter 17, alleging that Jesus Christ was the Christ, was the one that the Jews were waiting for. And as the Greeks heard it, as the city of Thessalonica was opening up to the gospel, they were amazed by this message. But that was not enough. Verse 5 tells us not only did they have power, but it was in the Holy Ghost. You see, I could come into this pulpit and outwardly speaking, we could try our best, humanly speaking at least, to to preach with much power, with authority. Many people say if you want to uh, get a message across and to sell something and to uh, get people on board with what you're saying, just simply say it confidently. A preacher can come into this pulpit and say what they like confidently. And then we can preach the truth confidently. But unless the Holy Spirit is in the midst... All the power in the world is meaningless. As the gospel is presented, as we spread the word of God and send it out to places like Thessalonica, like Larn, like the Antrim coast in its entirety, as we come to this nation of ours with the gospel, we need the power of preachers in the pulpit. We need them to preach with a forcefulness, with a conviction in their hearts. But we need more than that. Preaching would be in vain and would be pointless and would be without any merit if there was not the Holy Spirit in the midst as well. It's not just going through motions that preachers stand in this pulpit before they take the word of God and begin to present it to individuals that we pray for the Spirit and for unction. I might as well drive back down to Lurgan this afternoon rather than come back to the house of God if I was told with a certainty that the Holy Spirit is not going to be here in the pulpit with me. And you might as well stay at home. Log in online to somebody else that is going to be filled. If you could say for certainty who is going to have the power of God with them. But no, we spend the week and the week gone by praying for the Holy Spirit to be in this place Sabbath by Sabbath. And I trust you do that for your pastor. It'd be easy to forget at times. But we need to have preaching that comes with power. But power is not enough. We need the Holy, Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost to come into the midst. We need his power. We don't just need the human uh, presentation of the gospel to act in the pulpit. There has to be wisdom in all that. We have to try our best to present the gospel in a way that is going to be applicable and effectual in your heart. There's no point in me coming here and just going through the motions and making it as dure as possible. We need the Holy Spirit to come and to do something that I cannot do from this pulpit. We need the Holy Spirit to take his word, to plant it in your heart. All I'm doing is vibrating sound into your eardrums at present. And you need that. You need to hear the truth. You need to hear God's word with your ears. It needs to be understood. You need to know the scriptures in order to be saved. We need something more than your eardrums ringing as you leave this church. You need your heart throbbing after the God of the gospel. And only the Holy Spirit can do that. Only the Holy Spirit can give that much assurance of verse number five that conviction that you are a sinner in need of this good news that came unto them, not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Ghost. That is what our church is, what our land, what our world needs. We don't need the social activity of the, the governments that seek to try and do this and do that in, 
in, in our behalf and for us and to, uh, to take some sort of good living box that they might think to be charitable and helpful to those around us whenever really there's tyranny all around us. You think about abortion, and it was much in my mind uh, throughout the week to, to come and deal with that, but it's been dealt with in numerous places, but let's mention it. The government's seeking to press it upon us as if they have any right whether we want to talk about politics is, is beside the point, but they have no right to force anybody to do that which is against God. And if you're engaged in any of those activities uh, that would place you in such a position to, uh, to have to take your stand, you might have to bear much affliction, as verse number 6 tells us. Because there will have to be a point in time, it seems very soon, March 2022, where staff in the medical profession are going to have to take a stand. For the Thessalonians, as they stood for the gospel, their test and the trial of their faith came almost immediately. We read of the Jewish church and the Jewish synagogue turning against the gospel preachers. They only had three Sabbaths in the city. The Gentiles were hearing the gospel. The Jews were rejecting the gospel. And even when they left and went to Berea, supposedly God's own people ran after them, seeking to convince those that were hearing the gospel to turn away from it again. They had much affliction in Thessalonica. They weren't even content, the Jewish people, to just hinder the gospel there. They ran everywhere, preventing it as much as they could. So there was much affliction. They had received the word, it says there, verse number six. Let's read it again. Ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. That idea of receiving it is like taking your hand and and taking it into your bosom. We have taken the word of God, and I trust those that are believers here will know what it is to have received that word with, uh, with a desire to serve the God, the God of heaven without any questions over what might take place on the line, despite what afflictions might face you. And while we're talking about those in the medical, medical profession that will uh, have to suffer affliction as they take their stand for, for truth and for life and for what God would have us stand for, the question must be asked prior to that, if affliction was to come to us and persecution was to enter into Lorne, even this afternoon, which we would expect it won't, we're not going to be hindered as we walk out the back doors or the front doors, whatever we want to look at it this, uh, this, this morning or this afternoon, uh, being persecuted, being stoned, being beat up for calling ourselves Christians. But what if that was the case? Would you have a testimony that would stand in the midst of affliction, much affliction for that matter? Do you have a testimony at all? The Holy Ghost, he draws into God's people. He, he speaks to us. He applies the work of the cross to our souls, but he also gives us help. Also gives us the grace to stand, the power to stand with joy. Verse 6, it says, not only did they have much affliction, but they, they received the word in that affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. There was a desire to live a joyful life in the world as a result of what they had heard. And yet, it would seem at times when we come into our churches and when we speak to other believers that have heard the gospel, maybe been brought up in Christian homes, and they know the truth of God's word, they have all these, these truths in them, in their head. All this knowledge. They know X, Y, and Z about the gospel, but they don't have the joy of the gospel. Do you have that joy despite whatever afflictions you might have? And maybe you have suffered persecution already. Maybe loved ones have rejected you, friends and family have despised you for turning to the gospel and running to the truth of God's word. 
Maybe you do know something of affliction. Be encouraged that the Holy Ghost desires to be with you in the midst of it. To draw you unto himself. And to help you as you seek to be a good example in the world in which we live. Their election that came and evidenced itself with much assurance and with much affliction. But we see that as a result of that, there was an example had in the area, and not just in Thessalonica as a city, but if you were to take the time and glance at the back of your Bible, perhaps, or to look at a map uh, when you get home of the biblical uh, time period in which we're looking, uh, the cities that are mentioned outside, or the areas that are mentioned, Macedonia and Achaia, it wasn't just a small wee area. It would probably be something akin to the entire island of Ireland as a whole, maybe even slightly bigger, or something around that size anyway, just by my estimate, by the way. It's probably nothing like that, but as I look at the map, it looks somewhat similar to the size of our island. And they weren't just confined to a little small city on the coast like Thessalonica was, but their name, their testimony, it was sounded out and spread about. These verses tell us. Verse 7, let's read them together down to verse 9. And says, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. They had an example, and the idea of it being sounded out has a notion of being trumpeted. That's perhaps something for the kids to remember. A musical instrument here this morning is something that is loud. If you've ever heard a trumpet that has been blaring or you think of the bagpipes that are maybe blaring at some point as well, you hear them or the, the lambeg drum that we heard not all that long ago. It's something that cannot be missed. The gospel is to be sounded out, trumpeted out or echoed as the word could also indicate. And as we live our lives seeking to be examples in this world, we ought to have a desire to be like a trumpet. It also has, in the notion of it, uh, John Gill would indicate, uh, not only musically uh, pointing to the trumpet, but it should be a joyful sound in light of that. And there's many places in this passage that deals with joy, deals with rejoicing, thankfulness of heart. So as we trumpet the gospel out, there's no point doing it in a dur tone, miserable, about having to come to church twice on a Sunday or having to go to the prayer meeting and looking at it in that way, having to do this because you, you feel coerced almost and with your arm twisted uh, to come to worship God. That is not how the Christian life is to be lived. No, it is to be trumpeted. It is to be echoed as a joyful thing. Some of us are a bit like ducks. You quack the gospel in a sense, but a duck has no echo, supposedly, so I'm told. There's no echoing of a duck's sound. For whatever reason, scientists probably can't quite understand it. I can't understand it anyway. But if you were to take an echo, it is something that you can go up to uh, the reservoir there and go to the forest and you can uh, give a holler out. You'll never hear a duck's echo, supposedly. And many Christians, their testimony is like that. The sound just drops dead to the floor the moment they walk into a room. Their testimony is empty. It does not sound out at all, never mind joyfully or trumpeting or echoing. It's not clear and filled with truth. It's empty and dead and cold. For a heart to trumpet the truth of God's word in clarity and joyfully, we ought to be committed to know that truth. Knowing the gospel is essential in sounding it out. That might seem such an obvious thing. But it needs to be highlighted here. 
that we need to know God's word. We need to have it written upon our hearts in order to expect it to be echoed out and to be an example to others. The idea of the the word that is used here in terms of their example and the sounding out of that example and being spread abroad isn't so much that they they spoke it. While that is necessary as well, and we've dealt with that, I'm sure, here in the past as we preach God's word, we have a duty, a responsibility to speak out the message of the gospel. But contextually speaking, I can't emphasize that because that's not the purpose of these verses. It's almost like there's gossiping that went on about these people. Almost so much so that the Apostle Paul, as he says there in the verse number 8, he didn't need to speak about them, and they didn't even need to speak too much themselves because an example is something that you see with your eyes rather than hearing with your ears, isn't it? You follow an example with your eyes. You see what they're doing. You watch them with their hands as they're working perhaps in, in the workplace. You see the task that is being completed, and you follow the example that way. It's different to being taught. It's different to being instructed. And we ought to teach, we ought to instruct, but if our instruction and if our teaching and if our speaking is not followed up by a good example in living, then it's not going to spread about and sound out in any good way. So let's pray for an example that is, is yes, heard as we tell others about the gospel and seek to evangelize the, the, the people around us and our loved ones. But this passage is speaking about our example in the world. How we conduct ourselves in living is what's in view here. The people of Thessalonica, they handled themselves well. In the midst of persecution, in hearing the gospel, and that is why it spread about, not just into using our context into the entirety of our island, but it went even further than that. Not simply because they were good living and proud, proud in their hearts and seeking to tell a message about themselves, but no other people. They came, maybe merchantmen, sailors, passing through the city. They had a story to tell. Something to pass on about the people that they met in that place. If a stranger was to get off at the docks there in Lorne, and come to church here on Sunday, both morning and evening, and maybe you were to invite them for dinner or for supper after the meetings, and they were brought into your home, maybe spent a week or two with you, what message would they have to bring back? What would they have to say about your faith and about my faith? There might be times where they might get lucky, you might be a little bit more consistent that week than normal. Family devotions might be uh, in the books every single night after dinner. But if there were to be a fly on the wall maybe the following week, perhaps that time around God's word in the home, in the place of worship, would have been forgotten. God wants us to be a people that are watched by the world that have a message for the world to see with their eyes. God is aware of the fact that we are human beings. He's aware of the fact that we are but dust. He gave us the sacraments for that purpose, baptism and the Lord's table, to see with our eyes, to witness. And he wants you to be a witness for the sake of the gospel, to be an example 
in the world. You can't really be an example, and in many ways, we're kind of working our way backwards now, because the reason they were an example is because of the experience that they had. Verse number nine, it says, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering and what entering in we had unto you and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. I think in many ways, this is probably one of the main reasons that the gospel was being spread about and their testimony was known in the world because it was evidenced by a change in their life. A transformation had taken place. And I just wanted to read a little bit from um, Dr. Alan Cairns' dictionary in regards to repentance, because that is what a turning about is. There's a whole section that I'd love to run through uh, in its entirety, but uh, let me just highlight a few things from his definition. It says repentance is necessary. It is a grace. And he has these all highlighted with various verses of Scripture to identify them. It's a grace. It's necessary for salvation. It's wrought by the Holy Spirit. It is something which involves seeing and feeling the deadliness of our sin and the filthiness of it and hating it, a change of attitude toward it, sorrow and hatred for it. And he goes on to summarize it even further and says it's a change of mind, a change of emotion, regret for sin, a change of will, repudiating sin, and a transformation in that regard. But I think probably the best way that is summarized uh, really in our context this morning is the last part of his definition. He's speaking about the word metanoia, which is the Greek word that is translated repent in the scriptures. It indicates a definite purpose to forsake sin and obey God. Repentance or turning in the scriptural sense is a definite purpose to forsake sin and obey God. Have you forsaken your sin? That is the turning of this passage. We were uh, singing about this uh, not that long ago in the number 416. And the verse number 5, it says, The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. If you're a sinner here this morning outside of Christ, you have many idols which need to be turned away from. They may not be made of stone. They may not be carved out in wood in your mantelpiece when you go home that you bow down to or you say prayers over and light a candle about. It may not look anything like that, but there is idols living within your heart. Perhaps living is not the best word to use. There are idols that are corrupt, dead carcasses within your soul that need to be cast out, need to be done away with, because in this verse, number 9, it says, and at once, I believe the apostle here uses these words, obviously led by the Holy Spirit for a very particular purpose. There is a contrast made here. How ye turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The inference there is that the idols they had obviously were dead and untrue. And what you're holding on to as a sinner this morning is dead and untrue if it is not Christ. If you have not believed and received and taken in your heart and uh, by the hand of faith the gospel message as it has been proclaimed from this pulpit for how many years? If you have rejected it, if you have despised it, if you do not have the testimony of the Thessalonians that have accepted it, believed it, with much assurance, knowing that it is true and knowing that everything else is false as a result. If you have not cast out your idols from your heart and made room for the Lord, then never mind having a testimony, you are on your way to hell this morning. And you need the experience of turning. 
You need to turn from your sin. For many people today, and perhaps speaking to the younger ones in the congregation, which there are only a few here this morning, but brought up in Christian homes. I know it's like to be brought up in a church, brought to meetings week after week, to know the gospel from the earliest days, not even to be able to remember the first time hearing it preached and proclaimed. And so we have the truth in our minds, and sometimes it might be seemingly easy to turn from sin to God. Because outwardly speaking, we, we haven't had time in the world, maybe. We haven't spent time in, in the wickedness that is around us. We have been safe, in a sense, from such things. But does that mean that our repentance is any less a repentance to somebody that has been a drunkard the entirety of their lives? Not at all. My sin is as vile and wicked and depraved as anybody else's. It doesn't matter about your background. It doesn't matter about mommy and daddy and what we believe and what we teach. Every single one of us are born in need of repentance. Necessary, as Dr. Cairns puts it in the dictionary. Necessary for us to turn. Necessary for us to run to Jesus Christ for mercy. To the grace afforded to us as sinners that have been given another opportunity to turn. To run to him. This is the experience of the sinner saved by grace, turning, but also obedience. The verse goes on, it says that they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And again, the definition that the Reverend Cairns gives of uh, the term metanoia, it is the idea of not just simply turning and repenting in that sense, but obeying, obeying. And the word here for serve has that same indication of obeying. A servant, a slave, doing what the master tells them. This is how the Christian is to live their lives. Not like the slaves in Egypt, in bondage, and in sorrow, and under cruel masters. No, we, as in a sense, enslave ourselves gladly to the hand of the master. Because he's the kindest being, the kindest person, the kindest king, the kindest lord that has ever existed, will ever exist I'll gladly place my life in his hands to serve him in this life and in the next. We serve a living God, and serving a living God comes with the expectation that we serve him with our living lives. Every single day of our life should be set aside for the Lord. And again, emphasizing that it is not some dead service. God forbid you're here this morning going through the motions uh, half asleep because you're, uh, you've just went through another psalm, another time of prayer, another hymn, another portion of scripture to read, another man to stand in the pulpit to preach. You're going through the motions and it's dead to you. God forbid that be the case. God forbid that Christians even come to the house of God and that is our experience, that our service is not living that our service is not alive and joyful and filled with gladness, but it's dur and dead. That is not what Reformed Christianity is. That is not what conservative Christianity is. That is not what a fundamental Christian believes as we hold to the truth of the gospel. It's not that you come with a frown on your face and that you go through the miseries of this life. Nowhere to live this life. Gladly, with joy of the Holy Ghost, 
serving a God that is alive. Alive forevermore. One that lives for us is the one that we ought to live for. We don't, as believers, serve God now doing what we think might be best, what we hope to be the right way. No, we obey what God has told us is right. And again, that's why we need to know the Scriptures. There's no point having uh, the testimony of a person that goes to church, does uh, some things that are right and some things that are good, and I'm not telling you that you have to go home today and be a perfect person, because I'm not, and neither will you ever be. But we ought to obey God's Word and serve Him aright. This service is not just simply going and being a charitable person and helping those around you and serving in the church. While that is all included, I would imagine, the service here is to be a part of every single aspect of our lives, and therefore we have to have a desire to serve God in obedience in every single aspect of our lives. There has to be questions over your soul about things that you do, whether they are right or wrong. We have to be concerned with serving God aright. Not just because we will be judged one day for our every deeds, but because the world sees, even whenever we think they don't see. They know us perhaps better than we know ourselves at times. So let's serve the Lord in obedience. Let's turn from our idols to serve the living and true God. That is the experience that we are to have. That is a testimony that would be great for every single Christian to be able to hold and to be able to exclaim from the pulpit if you were ever given the opportunity to give a testimony to the grace of God. Our time is gone, but verse 10 is still before us, so let me just give you that before we leave. It's their expectation. Their election is one thing that they had assurance of the gospel which they heard the affliction they went through and the testimony that came and resulted as a, as, as a result of them hearing the gospel and standing fast in the midst of the affliction is another thing. It being sounded out, spread abroad, gossiped in the world, the experience of turning from their sin, casting out their idols and serving, obeying a living God, all that is well and good. But there's more for the Christian. Believe it or not, there's more than simply coming to church and rejoicing in God and reading God's word and being blessed in his presence. There's more for us than that. Verse 10, it says, To wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. And their expectation was an expectation grounded in truth, grounded in reality, grounded in history, and led them to a heavenly thought. And our faith is something that is, some people think of faith to be some heavenly thing that is beamed down from heaven and it stays there in a sense and it, it doesn't deal with, with reality here in this world that we just have a, a blind faith to believe X, Y, and Z that, that somebody taught us in Sunday school. No, that's not what it is. The faith that we have is based in truth that we are taught in Sunday school, in truth that is preached from God's word. It is grounded in reality, grounded in an empty tomb. Not a body that's still lying there, decaying and decomposed. But grounded in the fact, as he says in this passage, grounded in the fact that there is one that has been raised from the dead on the first day of the week, 2,000 years ago. Alive forevermore at the right hand of the Father who has delivered us from the wrath to come. And I want you to note those words, especially for you that are outside of Christ this morning. There is still wrath to come. Not for me. 
Not for anybody here that is washed in the blood of the Lamb, but for you that is outside of Christ, there is still wrath to come. Judgment that is looming over your head. For the Christian, for the child of God, what took place on Calvary, which will God willing be looking at this evening in a bit more detail, what took place on Calvary's cross was that the wrath that was due for sinners such as you and me was brought forward. Brought forward and applied to the Son of God in our place instead. But not all of God's wrath is dried up yet. It is dried up for me as a believer. It is dried up for all of God's people that are elect in the Son of God, elect in God the Father, as it's put in verse 1, and in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's still wrath remaining. Still judgment to come. Still damnation looming over the sinner's head if they would not take the hope of this epistle to the Thessalonians. I think one of the most amazing things about this verse is the fact that Jesus Christ being raised from the dead and delivering us from the wrath to come are just supporting points. Whenever Dad was instructing me somewhat in preaching, I do it sometimes. I don't know if he's listening or not, but... um, He's always said to try and stick to your three points or whatever you have. Emphasize one major point and give supporting points, especially in conclusion. I haven't done that at all, so if Dad's watching online, apologies for that. But the Apostle Paul does this in 1 Thessalonians, the verse number 10. The supporting points are the fact that Jesus was risen from the dead and that he delivers us from the wrath to come, and that just baffles my mind. Why is that a supporting point? How is that a subheading to be dealt with? But when you look at the verse number 10 in the prior part of it, it says that we're waiting for his son from heaven. That is the main point of this book in its entirety. The fact that Jesus Christ is coming again. He is alive forevermore. He has been risen from the death of that tomb in Jerusalem. He delivered us from the wrath to come. But child of God, that is just really the sub points for us to look to now. Like the people of Israel in the Old Testament, they longed after they looked for Jesus Christ coming. They looked for the Messiah to return or to come and to have that first advent in this world to be presented as their king and as their Lord that would take them from the bondage of this world and redeem them and purchase them to deliver them from their enemies and from their foes. And they looked forward for for generations, for thousands of years they waited, looked and longed for the King Jesus to come. And with such anticipation, the New Testament child of God looks for his return. With joy, that one day the trumpet will sound. And it will not just be my testimony or your testimony. But the world will be able to look on and see that there is another coming. Who is pure, who is holy, who is undefiled. And that is the expectation of the church. That is my expectation. That ought to be our expectation as a whole As a denomination, that ought to be our expectation, regardless of what you think that might look like when he comes, he is coming again. We ought to praise God for it. This is the hope of the child of God. This is what we are to expect in our day-to-day living as we serve a living and a true God. Know with a surety that that living and true God will make himself known without doubt to the world around us one day. The much affliction that we will face will be nothing compared to seeing him face to face. 
The joy that we will experience will not be able to compare it with anything else in this world. And then reality, as we look at the verse 10 and read the words on our page, we haven't a baldy notion what it's going to be like, really. Haven't a clue what it actually means for this one day to take place. For the one who they believe to be in heaven to come. Are you waiting for his son? In conclusion, that ought to be our testimony. Waiting for one, as it could be put. Some of us are waiting for pay rises and for paychecks, for the good life, or the American dream is sometimes it's called for people that go abroad. Well, there's nothing compares to this. This is lasting. This is real. This is true. This is offered to you. Everything else that the world offers, all of their expectations will just disappear into nothing. will be forgotten. will be left off. But if you have that hope of a coming king, of a living king, of one that wants you to be with him in heaven, wants you to bring your family with him, to teach them about these truths, to draw as many as you can by your testimony in the time that we have here in this world. If you simply believe in him, you'll have joy unspeakable forevermore. There's nothing that can top it. Sad to say, messages like this have been preached before. Messages like this have sent vibrations into your eardrums in days gone by. Pray, my Cornelius, that God would speak to you. Speak into your heart. Apply it to your soul. Do a work in you now. That you might experience the joy of the Lord, which passes all expectations that we might ever have. Let's just bow together in a word of prayer. And as you bow your head, in the presence of the King once again this morning, take the opportunity now to pray that God would give you such a testimony, that he would transform your life, that he would give you the gift of the Holy Spirit to put into action what ought to take place now in your heart. A turning from sin, a turning from idols, a running into the arms of Christ to serve the living and true God in obedience from this day onward and forevermore. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the word of this book to the Thessalonians. Lord, we realize that in our hearts and throughout our own life's experience, there's been many a people that have looked at us and have not witnessed a testimony and that know nothing about Christ as a result of seeing our lives. And yet, Lord, we pray that you forgive us for our failures in this regard You'd help us to turn away from the things of this world, to look to you and to you alone, and that the world might see something in us that is different, that is real, that is true. They might have a lusting after it, a desire that is uncontrollable, a longing to come to Christ, to have and to experience what we have experienced already and what we will one day experience in thy will. In days to come, 
whether we be raised from the dead or see you ourselves coming down from the courts of heaven, hearing the trumpet, Lord, what a day that will be when our Savior we see face to face with the King. Lord, I pray that each one here this morning might meet with you before then. Do business with God now. Get right with you and have their sins taken away. For the glory of Christ, we pray these things. For you are glorified in the salvation of souls and in the good testimony of your people here in this world. For we pray this for your kingdom's sake, for the king's sake, that he might have many children, many sinners to come home and to bring home with him in the days to come. For we pray these things in his name and for his glory alone. Amen. Amen.